Sentire Media. Hello, you. You're listening to A History of Italy. Episode 140, King Ferdinand's Woes, 1458 to 1494. So we left off last time with the King of Naples, as well as lots of other stuff, Alphonse the Magnanimous, popping his clogs and leaving the kingdom of Naples to his bastard son Ferdinand, also known in Italian as Ferrante. Bastard because he was not the son of the queen, not because he was unpleasant to his dad. The other bits of the kingdom, Aragon, the Balears, Sardinia and Sicily, went to Alphonse's brother and Ferdinand's uncle, John, who became John II and would later be known as John the Great. So he must have done a pretty good job. Anyway, we'll leave him to it. This meant for our Ferdinand that anything he wanted to do would have to be done without drawing on the considerable resources of all of his father's vast kingdom. In short, he had to rely on the kingdom of Naples alone. The question now was, Did he actually have Naples at all? Was everyone involved, the magnates of the kingdom and the Pope, going to be all happy and bouncy about the new king? No, they were not. First of all, there was the Pope, Calixtus III, a.k.a. Alfonso Borgia. He had actually come to Italy with Ferdinand's dad, and you would hope that he would be all nice and chummy with the sun. No luck. I'm sure you remember by now that the popes claimed overlordship of the kingdom of Naples and felt they could do with it what they pleased, and indeed Calixtus claimed the kingdom for himself, possibly to then pass it to his nephew, Pierre-Louis, who was already Duke of Spoleto, in a show of nepotism that would soon be a fixed habit of the popes, even more than in the past. He also issued a bull prohibiting the succession of Ferdinand and ordering the magnates not to swear oaths of loyalty to him. The poor king, who was not yet fully a king, protested to the Italic League. You will remember that from the last episode. It was the unprecedented alliance of the most important players on the Italian scene. Milan, Florence, Venice, Naples and the Pope. The current situation showed how flimsy that whole thing actually was. On the 25th of July 1458, Ferdinand had the barons of the realm swear an oath of loyalty to him. The situation had all the elements of the lead-up to a big fight, but then Pope Calixtus III died, and, as we know, nothing gets in the way of your plan to take control of the Kingdom of Naples like your own death. The new guy was a man by the name of Enea Piccolomini, who took the name of Pius II, and he evidently could not be bothered with the whole taking Naples business, and he decided 
he would let Ferdinand be king. Did that mean that Ferdy was now secure? Not really. You see, he had had the barons swear loyalty to him, but not all of them had been in attendance, and there were some important names missing. We won't go into all of them, of course, but one was the number two big cheese in the land, the Prince of Taranto, a member of the powerful Orsini family. Not a good sign, but for the moment, the situation held. To get things going seriously, the opposition to Ferdinand needed a rallying point, and when it came to squabbling over the Kingdom of Naples, who was the arch-enemy of the Aragonese? Did you get it? The Anjou. Old René of Anjou, who had fought Ferdinand's dad Alphonse, was still around, but getting a little long in the tooth. He had a son, John, and he would fit the bill just fine. Thank you very much. More cracks started to show. Revolts started up in Calabria, and not only among the nobility, but also trickled down to farmers and shepherds unhappy with the taxation. Ferdinand managed to subdue the situation. Soon after, however, on the 25th of October, 1459, a combined Genoese and Angevin fleet showed up in the Bay of Naples. The French had a sort of foothold with Genoa, also playing on the decades-old hate for the Aragonese in the city. The southern part of Abruzzo rose in rebellion, as did Puglia, the heel of the boot, and John of Anjou was able to land and started to make a triumphant march there. Many counts and vassals flocked to his banner, as did the strategic city of L'Aquila. The prince of Taranto, Orsini, who may have been nurturing thoughts of taking the kingdom for himself, also went along for the ride. Things were looking pretty bleak for Ferdinand, but the Pope decided to weigh in on his side, which could help close the gap a bit. Then, on the 7th of July, 1460, Ferdinand faced off with John at the Battle of Sarno and got his bottom handed to him. He was forced to retreat back to Naples with John of Anjou's armies raiding around his kingdom and having eaten up from two-thirds to three-fourths of it. You may feel very excited now, as it seems that we are setting up for a big last-stand siege of Naples. Unfortunately, it's not that exciting. Sorry. Ferdinand managed to slowly get back in the saddle. New forces came from the Pope. Vassals started to switch back, and help also came from Skanderbeg, the hero of Albania who had received help from Ferdinand's father, Alphonse. Another battle came, that of Troy, on the 18th of August 1461. This obviously wasn't the Trojan War or anything, since we're a few thousand years off and a bit too far off to the west. We have a Troy in Italy too, Troia in northern Puglia. This time, Ferdinand managed to win. That was more or less all she wrote for John of Anjou's holiday in southern Italy. Ferdinand was not too vengeful with those who had sided with John, only those 
who would not give up even at the very end, were severely punished. Although France and Geneva sent another fleet, all they could do was make a show of force, and then, in 1464, John of Anjou definitively left the peninsula. You could say it was Aragonese 2, Angevin's 0. So, there was Ferdinand finally secure on his throne, ready to settle down and do some peaceful kinging. After all, he was sitting on the southernmost part of a famously peaceful, simple group of political entities, was he not? We are going to discuss some of the coalitions that formed, and some campaigns, and so on, and I really don't expect you to remember all of the sides and changes and so on. Once again, it's just to give you an example of how unimaginably confusing things were in Italian history. So, the first diplomatic step was to enter a coalition with the Florence of Piero de' Medici, the Milan of Galeazzo Maria, and the Papal States of Paul II. This coalition was turned on the Malatesta of Rimini, but when the Malatesta had only Rimini left, and the Pope was pushing to include it in his dominions, the rest of the coalition, fearing the Papal States would become too powerful, turned on the Pope. Ferdinand then continued to annoy the Pope by encouraging opposition to his rule in the Papal States, and poured salt on his wounds by deciding that, instead of a tribute of money, he would simply give the Pope a white horse once a year. Tensions once again began to rise, and once again the Pope in question died just at the right moment, and Paul II gave way to Sixtus IV in 1471, and everything was hunky-dory again. The next spot of trouble started brewing between the Pope and Florence, and of course we'll go into greater detail on that when we get to the folks in question. Suffice it to say that the result was a split in the league, with Florence, Venice and Milan forming their own club, and the Pope hooking up with Naples. The situation with Florence escalated, and both the Pope and Ferdinand were happy to give the green light for a certain conspiracy in Florence against the ruling Medici by a faction led by the Pazzi family. War followed the failure of the Pazzi conspiracy, and with Milan and Venice busy, Florence was on its own. After some initial papal and Neapolitan successes around Tuscany, diplomacy kicked in, and who should show up in Naples but a certain Lorenzo de' Medici. To make a long story short, he ended up managing to flip Naples, who sided with Florence. So, the Pope sided with Venice, and Milan joined Naples and Florence, along with Ferrara, and so on, and so forth, and over, and over again. 1480 came around, and you could perhaps say that Ferdinand was at the height of his power. He had consolidated his kingdom, and made the right moves in Italian politics. He was even extending his influence into Tuscany. So, once again we ask ourselves, what could possibly go wrong? On the 28th of July, 1480, several thousand Turkish troops landed in Salento, the inner heel of the boot, and they proceeded to lay siege to Otranto, which fell on the 13th of August. The Ottoman threat 
was now very, very real. By February, the Turks had made their way inland to Minervino, where they beheaded the local lord. Naples first reacted by gaining a naval victory at Valona. In June, help against the foreign threat came from an unlikely source, when Genoese ships showed up sent by Sixtus IV. With superiority gained on the sea, Naples and her allies were able to set up a naval block of Otranto and the city was retaken on the 10th of September after over a year in Ottoman hands. Portuguese, Spanish and Hungarian troops arrived to help when it was all over. Rather than continue with the anti-Turkish initiative, they went back to worrying about European things. Florence and Venice just sent a tiny bit of cash as a symbolic gesture. Not only did the events surrounding the taking of Otranto not spark a war of Christians versus Muslims, but Ferdinand had no qualms in actually using a contingent of Turks some time later in yet another war, this time over the city of Ferrara. Ferrara is a lovely city, by the way, which I really recommend visiting when you have seen all of the main Italian sites, especially in autumn when they have the Buskers Festival. They have a castle right in the centre of the city with a functioning moat still around it, and you can take a boat tour of said moat, which looks a little surreal. The boat is almost as wide as the moat, so it ends up looking a little like a kiddie ride. Anyway, he who controlled Ferrara also had control of the Comacchio Valley, Comacchio being another lovely place to visit, known as the Little Venice It's a good substitute if you don't fancy the crowds of the Serenissima and you want to have a nice meal of eels. The Venetians had their greedy eyes on Ferrara because they already controlled Ravenna by that time and wanted control of Ferrara and the Comacchio Valley to complete their collection. Ravenna, incidentally, another great place to visit where you can get a taste of very early medieval Italian history since it was the capital first of Odoassa and then Theodoric after being the last capital of the Western Roman Empire. If you Google Emperor Justinian, you will probably get an image of a mosaic with him and his impressive eyebrows. Well, that is in Ravenna. So, Ercole d'Este, Lord of Ferrara, fearing Venice, called in Naples since he was related to Ferdinand, although he had recently fought against him. This is where Ferdinand sent his son Alphonse with an army that included a contingent of Turks. The Pope, however, was interested in the fall of Ferrara since he was helping his nephew carve out a signoria which already included Forlì and wanted Faenza which belonged to Ferrara. So the order was to block the advance of the Neapolitan army. When the Neapolitan army reacted by causing havoc in the Papal States, this turned out not to be such a good idea, and so the Pope switched sides, and it was everyone against Venice. Venice tried to get the King of France involved, inviting him to stake his claim to the Duchy of Milan and the Kingdom of Naples, and everyone tried to get the Turks on their side. After a series of battles, which included an attack by Venice on the city of Gallipoli in the far south, Everybody made peace in 1484, and not much came out of it, except for Venice getting a few minor cities, such as 
Rovigo. So, now Ferdinand was 61 years old. He had stabilised his kingdom and weathered the storms of Italian political conflict and an Ottoman invasion. Could he now have a bit of peace and quiet in his twilight years, with his son Alphonse ruling by his side? Of course he couldn't. No offence, of course, to those young people out there who are over 61. But this was the end of the Middle Ages, so 61 was a great run. The fact that Alphonse was ruling at Ferdinand's side was one of the factors that caused, once again, unrest among the barons. A secret meeting of the magnates of the land was held, but the king found out and had some of them arrested, forcing the rest out into the open. The Pope also saw his chance and intervened in favour of the rebels, and so the city of L'Aquila also rebelled, raising the papal standard. In Rome, Cardinal John of Aragon, another son of the king, died, supposedly from eating bad mushrooms. War broke out. Despite the papal forces managing to defeat Alphonse, son of the king and Duke of Calabria, at Velletri, you may be shocked to know that nothing much came out of it. Peace was reached in August 1486, with the king forking out a load of cash and the Pope sending a legate to calm the barons. Now, finally, finally, King Ferdinand was able to reign with his son increasingly taking on responsibility until his death in 1494, two years after the first voyage of Columbus. Grazie mille. Thank you very, very much for listening. Thanks in particular to my wonderful Patreon supporters, starting with the first half of the Marguerite Hack and Galileo Galilei level, Alison H, Amanda D, Anthony G, Brian J, Carrie W, Selene, Cindy M, Dean V, Dominique T, thanks for the visit, Dominique, lovely to see you, Emily B, Federica R, Francisco A, Gabriel S, Greg, Gunnar, Ignazio, Il Valentino, Jane J, Jeff M, Jeff S and Jeffrey W, Jess and Shari, John W, Juan Diego, and Julia G. Then, of course, we cannot forget the tippy-top Maria Montessori and Dante Alighieri level, Paolo, Lisa K, Andrew M, Peter W, Kevin O, David L, Rinat, David C, Oak, JW, Sen, and David A. Like them if you want, you can become a Patreon supporter today by going to our website, www.ahistoryofitaly.com, going to the support page and clicking on Patreon, where as well as supporting the show, you can have access to ad-free episodes and extra content. You can also get in touch if you wish, hello at ahistoryofitaly.com, Dot com with comments, questions, or just to say hello and tell me how things are going in your neck of the woods. Thank you again very much for listening. Grazie mille, and until next time, arrivederci.
Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.